Hello, and welcome to the December edition of In Conversation with the Lancet HIV's podcast. I'm Philippa Harris, the Deputy Editor, and today I'm talking to Alok Modi from the Washington University School of Medicine in the USA, and Izu Kanji Sakaswi from the Center for Infectious Disease Research in Zambia. We'll be talking about their study on the impact of implementing universal HIV treatment in Zambia, which is published in the December issue. Alongside this paper, our last issue of 2021 also contains studies on the association of pregnancy with engagement in HIV care in women with HIV in the UK and a cluster randomised trial on the effect of providing women with sustained access to HIV self-tests on testing and HIV incidents, um, alongside lots of other very interesting content. So now let's talk to Alok and Izukanji. So thank you for joining us. So your study looks at universal test and treat in Zambia. So can you give us an overview of, of HIV in Zambia and also how the treatment guidelines have evolved over the last five years? Thank you for that question. So Zambia is one of the countries in sub-Saharan uh, Africa that really has a high HIV prevalence. Currently it's around 12% and we still record quite a number of new HIV infections and uh, latest data is around 48,000 new HIV infections being recorded each year. So over the years, Zambia has essentially followed the World Health Organization treatment guidelines as they're really uh, broad and take on a really public health approach and enable us to implement treatment uh, guidelines that are able to be implemented on a broader scale. So they're, they're applicable to even rural settings that have uh, limited health resources. So the uh, Zambian Ministry of Health over the years do keep a close eye on what the WHO is recommending and uh, based on in-country data and information, make changes or adapt the WHO guidelines. So in 2017, we moved from guidelines that essentially guided when one could start HIV, uh, when one could start antiretroviral therapy. So we moved from uh, CD4 guidance that said anybody with a CD4 count of less than 500 could start antiretroviral therapy. Prior to that, the guidelines had also recommended that certain subpopulations, such as HIV positive women that were pregnant or breastfeeding could also start antiretroviral therapy or those that had concurrent uh, opportunistic infections such as tuberculosis and other conditions. So there were special criteria for um, that could start antiretroviral therapy unless their CD4 count was less than 500. But around 2017, we moved from that to essentially the universal test and start treatment regimen or guidelines that enabled anybody with a diagnosis of uh, HIV to start uh, life-saving antiretroviral therapy. And could you give us just a little bit more information about what universal test and treat means in the context of this study? So you said it removed the restrictions, but, but kind of what, what the impact that had on, on people accessing antiretroviral therapy? Okay, so my organization, the Center for Infectious Disease Research in Zambia, also known as CIDAS, works um, in support of the government's effort in uh, improving access to HIV treatment. We're generally funded by the U.S. government through PEPFA and CDC, and we supported a lot of uh, public health facilities across the country, but with, with specific focus in uh, four provinces in Zambia. So we were able to pull data from over 100 health facilities, from about 120 health facilities, and pulled data that was routinely collected during service provision and looked at what the impact was of the switch in the HIV treatment guidelines. 
So the guidelines allowed anybody who was diagnosed with HIV or had a prior diagnosis of HIV, but not yet on treatment, the ability to start treatment as soon as they were ready. Previously, individuals had a somewhat protracted course to starting antiretroviral therapy. They'd have to go through uh, sessions of psychosocial counseling. They'd have to have a routine laboratory tests done, and those results come back to the health facility and to the, and to the provider to review prior to starting ART. But with universal test and start, all this was shortened. An individual could start in ART the same day that they had their treatment, as long as the provider couldn't de detect any red flags that required them to delay the start of treatment, and if the patient was willing to start treatment on that very day. The issue of psychosocial counseling and support continued despite this immediate or same-day start of ART. So 2017 saw this, this big policy change. How swift um, was Zambia able to sort of roll this out nationally and, and, you know, were there gaps, you know, did it take, take a while? And also, were there any people that were excluded from these changes in guidelines? So I'll start with your last question first. So there were no people excluded from this change in guideline or policy. It was made available to anybody as long as they had the diagnosis of HIV. And you have to remember that there was a pool of individuals that were already diagnosed as having HIV, but had a high CD4 count of more than 500 that had not yet been initiated on ART. Instead, they were asked to, such individuals would be asked to come back to a health facility to have a CD4 test che uh, checked every six months. And if that CD4 count dropped below 500, then they would start ART. So for such individuals that were essentially already on our books, we're able to quickly call them and let them know that there was a policy change and they could get back to us as quickly as they were able to start treatment. In terms of how quickly were we able to pivot, was the health system able to pivot in line with the policy change? There had been some small strides prior to the official release of the guidelines. So about two to three months prior to the guidelines really being uh, launched, there were changes being implemented on a smaller scale at facility level. So already providers knew what was coming, they were aware of what was in the WHO guidelines, and uh, they were able to start initiating treatment, particularly for those patients that seemed really willing to start the treatment early on. For the most part, I think there was a rapid uptake, particularly in the urban settings where we're able to get health care providers quickly trained up to understand the changes in policy and the implications of the policy, and then to have teams go out across all the 10 provinces in the country, be able to sensitize the provincial teams, the district teams, and then get to the facilities. So you can imagine um, that the uptake was varying across these different uh, geographic locations with the more easy to get to more better staffed health facilities, you know, obviously having easier access to the information and able to implement it at a much quicker rate than those that were more in the remote areas, hard to reach, and perhaps not really able to access the information as easily as their urban counterparts. So your study looked at the impact all these treatment changes had, um, but in a real world setting rather than you know, a trial setting. So, so what did you find and what were the, what were the results? 
So thank you for that question. I mean, I think, you know, what we did for this study to really look at like the impact of universal treatment in a real world setting is we use something called a, nat- a natural experiment and, sp- and specifically what's called a regression discontinuity design. And basically in that you're comparing people who came, who enrolled in clinic right before kind of the change in guidelines to right after the change in guidelines. We did do, you know, to to ensure rigor and like allow for a little bit of time for the uptake of guidelines. You know, there was a little bit of space there that what we did, but, you know, this study design allows us to sort of look at the impact of universal treatment with, with a lot of rigor, but also a lot of re- relevance because we're looking at it in a real world setting. But basically, and like to the point of like how rapid did these policy changes, like, I, I mean, I think our results actually speak quite a bit to that things happened quite quickly, but we found that there was about a 33% increase in the percent of people who were started on ART the day of enrollment. And then also a 17% increase in those who were started on ART within at least a month. And then about a 7% increase in the those who were still retained in care about 12 months later and, and on ART. So those are, you know, kind of the major findings looking at some of the short shorter and long-term outcomes of this policy. And I think, you know, some other key things that we found was that, you know, implementing UTT, it kind of reduced the disparities in ART initiation across patient subgroups. Before, you know, there was a lot of kind of heterogeneity across sex, age, maybe some clinical criteria like CD4 about the timing and whether, you know, rates of ART initiation. But once kind of UTT was in place, we we saw that there was quite uniform rates of ART initiation. They all, everyone kind of came to the same high level around, I think it was around 80, around 80%. Um, with same-day ART initiation. That finding didn't necessarily hold for the 12-month outcomes of retention and care. There were still heterogeneity and differences across patient subgroups at that time point. And then I think the last thing is, you know, there's been a lot of question about, you know, what what is the impact of actually initiating same-day under routine settings where it's not, you know, a tightly controlled situation with a lot of counseling. Um, And we also found that, you know, we estimated that starting about six people same day would actually kind of prevent one episode of loss to follow up by 12 months. Um, so kind of thinking of like, there's a number needed to treat of six for same day RT initiation under these routine settings, which again are going to be less controlled and maybe not always the kind of rigor and quality that some of the counseling and evaluation that would happen that happened under like the more controlled trials that we sort of, that we've had in the past. So I think, you know, taken as a whole, this sort of just, this indicates that UT implementing UTT led to consistent improvements in both short and long-term patient outcomes, though the, the long-term outcomes were a bit more modest. So it's we need to learn how to really take these improvements in both the rapidity and uptake of ART that we're seeing in the short term and really turning them into really long-term gains as well, kind of at 12 months and beyond. So yeah, I was interested in the disparity. So one of the findings for the paper, yeah, was that you know, previously groups like uh, your paper brought out men and, and those with advanced disease had initiated at lower rates of antibiotic therapy. But then, yeah, post-universal treatment, you know, there was much more parity in, in the rates that you were seeing. I was wondering, you know, what do you have any ideas specifically what what why, you know, just introducing the universal treatment makes that difference? Was was outreach better? Did people feel um can't remember the word, like a, a psychological thing that people felt more comfortable taking treatment? That's a really good question. And I think, and I think, you know, this is where 
you know, our study and our ability to like really just look at this on like what in the real world setting with when a national policy was implemented is that, you know, the national policy is implemented and then there, there can be like indirect consequences and spillover effects, you know, either positive, probably in this case, or negative. And we really get to assess that. So, you know, an example to give is like, is the BCPP trial um, from Botswana, where they, you know, they had one of the major UTT trials and saw a lot of improvements. They, they also, I think, were assessed what happened when rapid ART specifically was implemented as, as a policy kind of in the middle of that trial. But I think you can kind of see it before, before that policy, there were, there really, what even though there was UTT, there wasn't really any of this rapid start. I'm kind of assuming I don't have direct knowledge because there was probably some efforts in sort of trying to make sure that things were have the UTT that they were implementing as part of the trial was happening according to guidelines, like very, you know, very strictly. And I think this is probably an example of sort of seeing what happens in the, when it's implemented, because with, before you know, there's an eligibility requirement. There is at least some assessment that needs to happen to decide this person should start ART, this person should not. They might, you know, they might have something like a, you know, be very sick because when like have a high WHO stage or again, if they're pregnant or breastfeeding um, women, they could be started. And then there's not really an assessment that needs to happen. Now, everyone who walks in the door, as long as they have, they test positive for HIV, they're eligible for treatment. So there's no there's no assessment that's required. There's, and that just reduces the barriers. So, you know, a provider kind of, and I think this is our hypothesis, a provider then just has everyone in front of them. They feel, you know, like they should be started on ART. I think our hypothesis is that just that by removing these requirements and these barriers to assessing for having to assess ART eligibility, waiting for CD4 count results to come back, it just allowed the ART initiation process to be a lot more stream, streamlined. So once people were linked to care, they were able to be started on ART. And then some of the differences between subgroups kind of go away at that point, as, especially with regards to ART initiation. So I'm not sure that it was you know, necessarily a major change in willingness from the patient oh. perspective or the provider perspective, but yeah, I think I it's just a lot of systems-based issues. I agree with you, Alok, about the system-based issues and the barriers to actually getting treatment being taken away. But then also in the real-world setting, um, which is different from, I guess, the clinical trials, is that you have advocacy groups who are agitating for increased access to life-saving medications. You know, the data was already out in the public space that life-saving antiretroviral works, and it works better if you start as early as possible. So as soon as the policy shift was made from government, uh, we were able to work with advocacy groups, uh, community-based organizations, and really do a lot of sensitization and awareness. Uh, there were all these radio programs going on to let people know, not just people living with HIV, but their families, their networks, to let them know that um, the policy had been changed and anybody who was diagnosed with HIV could start treatment. Further, those individuals, like I said before, who were already on our books as being uh, diagnosed with HIV, but had higher CD4 counts and not yet eligible to start treatment, we were able to call them. So we had this process of calling patients to let them know that actually you don't have to wait for your CD4 count to drop. You don't have to wait to get sick before we can start these medicines on you. It's uh, available to anybody as long as they're HIV positive. So come back as soon as you can to the facility and we'll start treatment. 
So it's interesting that, yeah, it's a community organisation sort of involving them and, and making sure that you're really thinking about the, the broader public health messaging is, is really, you know, almost as important as, as making a policy change. And then finally, just to sort of finish up, so you, you talked, you know, there was this big increase in same-day um, antiretroviral initiation, which is great, but there were more, mod- the, you know, the, the increases that you saw of retention of antiretroviral therapy at 12 months were much more modest. Going forward, what would you like to see to see those kind of improved to the same, same degree? You know, so that's the really important point here. I mean, I think, you know, implementing UTT, it was a very, it's an important major step where we saw great increases in short-term outcomes more equitable ART initiation, but I think, you know, some of those where there was heterogeneity earlier on in outcomes before, now we're just seeing, okay, like everyone's starting ART, but then we're seeing those a little bit later on in terms of, you know, issues related to retention, even though, you know, implementing UTT still had modest, caused modest increases in retention on ART at 12 months. I think, you know, we still have to think about everything that, that happens after someone starts ART, which I think, you know, and there's, you know, there's so much literature on, you know, different barriers to HIV care, whether there's, you know, issues related to the clinic and, you know, rude provider behaviors. And we need, you know, we need to make shifts towards more patient-centered care where there's a lot more, it feels a lot more of a welcoming environment and a place where the people at the HIV clinic are necessarily there to help help address any issues you're having, not necessarily scold you or, you know, make you feel bad for not really being able to like keep up with treatment. So one, you know, a lot more patient-centered care, you know, there's also a recognition that, you know, a lot of patients are different. So like some, you know, some might have work issues where it's just coming to the clinic is frequently is more of a challenge, but if they had longer refills for ART, that's going to work out. But there's other folks who are, who are traveling or for work or, you know, are mobile or need to go, you know, back home for funerals or anything like that. And those circ- in those circumstances, it might not be that a longer ART refill, you know, addresses the issues unless that's long enough to tide someone over for that full trip. So that, you know, in that sense, you kind of need to think about what do we do for these p- folks who are transferring and are, are mobile. We need to have like flexible systems that can, that can accommodate them, not, not necessarily require them to like travel back to their original clinic to get medicines. Cause at some point, you know, I think people, if they run out, they they do they do the best they can. But if the system doesn't really accommodate what they need, they probably you know end up having gaps, gaps in care. And then you, I mean, you, you we still do have the you know the folks that there's a lot there's a lot of issues. There's psychosocial issues. There's stigma. Then you know, you can lay on like the clinic and structural barriers are on top of that. And those you know those kind of folks need like a, probably a more multidisciplinary approach to supporting their ability to stay in, stay in care. But I think in the end, I think it's all thinking, of, again, I think at the systems level about like how is HIV care being delivered and how can we really modify, adapt the system to really be more responsive to the, the needs of the patients. Um, and I think that requires a lot of targeted and tailored approaches and really acknowledging that there's, there's a lot of heterogeneity in what patients need and making sure we deliver like the full menu of options that are needed to help them stay in care. And I think that's probably the way to, you know, part of the way to getting towards more like long-term sustained engagement in care. Yeah, I agree with you, Alok. And what we also have to remember is that UTT addressed that 
loss of patients in the pre-ART cohort, so individuals that were deemed not eligible. And we saw a lot of losses of those patients prior to them starting um, treatment. So this strategy didn't necessarily address all the things that Lopez talked about, the barriers that uh, patients as well as the health system face in terms of improving retention, but really just was more skewed towards addressing some of the retention issues that individuals that found themselves in the pre-ART cohort faced in terms of actually actually starting treatment and then getting down this pathway that then they have to navigate the different barriers to long-term ret- retention. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. So thanks to Alok and Nizukanji. There won't be a podcast next month as we're taking a winter break, but you can access all our previous episodes on all the major platforms you listen to podcasts on. And we'll be back with the February issue next year to continue the conversation.